Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Kat Ross. Kat or Catherine, I don't know if you prefer Catherine, I've always called you Kat, is a para rower and a four-time Paralympian. She won a silver medal in Beijing and has been a multiple world champion. So welcome to the podcast, Kat. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. And I know that you've only recently got back from a trip overseas for a couple of regattas. So hopefully you're over your jet lag and back into the normal swing of things. Yeah, I mean, jet lag always kicks my butt coming back to Australia. (laughs) But I think the best thing is to get, get straight into the swing of things and keep moving as best as possible. Yeah, yeah. So Kat, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment and how you got into para rowing? Well, I am a para rower, as you mentioned. I'm in the classification called PR2, where in rowing, that means the seat doesn't slide at all. The boat is slightly Mm -hmm. uh, wider and heavier, and we mainly just use complete upper body. It's quite taxing, as everyone knows, legs are a big driver in in rowing. Mm -hmm. So my back is my legs, basically. I got into para rowing through a talent search identification actually back in 2006. It was a very long time ago. Um, I had had an accident on my leg while I was overseas tripping about and when I came home I took up swimming as a good form of rehab and ended up doing some ocean competition swimming and it sort of evolved from there really and someone had mentioned the Paralympics to me back then quite being naive um, thinking mm. I couldn't be a Paralympian I'm not in a wheelchair but when <laughs> I looked into things a little more I realized that it that's not what it's all about and and so you know the rest is history from there I got tested from multiple sports and rowing was one that popped up as quite a talent and how I stemmed into that sport was originally my accident that I had at the age of two years of age on my family farm I was run over by a lawnmower a ride on lawnmower mm. so unfortunately one of those freak accidents my father didn't know I was there and accidentally backed over the top of me and unfortunately mm. he's never going to forget this because it was father's day morning oh. so it's a constant reminder for him but while growing up I had multiple corrective surgeries just to be able to walk I was informed that I wouldn't be able to walk by the time I was like 30 so um, they mm. did the best they could they thought in the meantime to to reconstruct my leg as best as possible to have some quality of life. Little did they know that I'm a little stubborn and uh, <laughs> you can't tell me no. And here I am many, many years after that, mm-hmm. <laughs> still uh, playing sport at an elite level to, you know, to the surprise of them all. And mm-hmm. it's never, never held me back. It's actually opened many doors for me. Awesome. Yeah, and so is it your right leg or your left leg? Oh, it's my right leg, yes. Yeah, and and so is it the whole leg, like from the hip down, that's impacted? The main impaction was from the knee. The knee on the inside, the blades cut the growth plates and damaged the knee quite heavily, and then it actually went all the way down and cut the leg in multiple positions right down to my toes. Now, it, mm. believe it or not, I didn't lose any toes and the blade went between my big toe and the next toe. Wow. So it was kind of like, you know, quite bizarre that I didn't lose any toes out of the yeah, whole or accident. even your leg. Yeah, the, and the whole leg. I mean, I was only two years of age, so my leg wasn't mm. very long and 
you know, it, they did the best that they could to save the leg back in the 80s. Prosthetics weren't, you know, all that great. So the doctors convinced my parents that I was better off with whatever they could fix. Um, mm. So that unfortunately made a very long journey throughout my life of corrective surgery. Mm. And so do you have a significant leg length difference as a result of that? Yes, I have. Um, due to the growth plates being cut, mm. the leg didn't grow straight and it didn't grow as long as my other leg. Now, <laughs> I come from a big family and a very tall family and I grew almost six foot. So my mm. right leg by the time I was 15 was actually about six inches shorter than my left wow. leg. Yeah, yeah, quite significant. So I had a, a huge limp where, and, and this is where it stemmed from not being able to walk far, couldn't stand for very long, couldn't walk very mm. far, but I did the best I could. Since then, I've had multiple corrective surgeries on leg lengthening. And my recent one, actually, to leg lengthen was back in 2017, actually. Right. Um, that, yeah. So now my leg is only about, mm, what did they say, about two or five centimetres shorter. So I still right. walk with a limp, but not as significant, yeah. less taxing on the body. And um, I'm actually better, have a better quality of life now than what I had probably, you know, 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, because with that degree of a leg length difference, there would have been a significant amount of impact on your hips and your and your lower spine just because of the difference in that leg length. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, just the, the way that my back and, and hips had to compensate, you know, that's going to have long life effects of my hips are now a little bit loose than what they should be. Uh, I will eventually have to have hip replacements, knee replacements, mm. things like that. So it has had a huge impact on the body I yeah. don't notice it as yet touch wood you know I, I am preparing myself for another journey of surgeries down the line mm -hmm. okay well let's hope that's not for a while yet yeah touch wood trying to stay fit mm -hmm. and healthy as best as possible and keep the bones <laughs> and the muscles strong um, yeah. and that definitely helps yeah for sure and so what event do you race in for power rowing uh, for power rowing at the games, I compete in a double. So it's actually a mixed double, so uh, mm -hmm. male and female. But I, I've also started dabbling in quite a bit of singles work. So right. that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And so as a four-time Paralympian, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes over the years. What do you think some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the sport of power rowing? Well, yes, there has been some significant changes over the time and that's from equipment to physiologically the type of athletes we're having and from the distance. So in 2008, it was the first time it was actually in the games and everything was quite primitive. Equipment was very basic and it was, it was also pretty exciting because there was a lot of raw talent happening out there. And as time has gone, equipment has developed to very quick, streamlined, light, everyone getting as much edge as they possibly can out of their disabilities, like every 1% accounts, right through to the distances changed in 2016. From 2008 to 2016, it was one kilometre racing, so it was quite a, we call it a sprint. Some people wouldn't, but to, we, to us it felt like a sprint. It was, you know, about four minutes to now two kilometres. So it's actually double distance. So that's changing the, the physiology of, athletes and again the equipment a bit we do have specific sizing and weight restrictions of the equipment that we have to meet but the areas that we can make advances on are 
this type of seats, the type of blades we're using, foot stretches, and then ourselves, you know, as our engines. Mm. And so how has your training changed from that more endure the the more sprint sort of the 1000 meters to the 2000 meters did that have a big impact on the type of training that you did? It did slightly. I actually thought it would have been a lot more um mm-hmm. but as, you know as rowers we tend to do a lot of kilometers on water anyway the one thing that sort of changed a little bit for me was I used to spend a lot more time in the gym a lot more hours in the gym building the strength for that power over the one kilometers for two kilometers now it's you still got to have that power but you got to be able to sustain it so working more on that endurance side of that so that side of my training has changed up so the different types of water work that we're doing a little bit more longer holding out distances longer and the weight training has changed slightly so not you know you're still trying to work on strength and getting strong and things like that but you've got to be able to hold the power at the high end so it's just changing it slightly for that and so what would a typical week of training look like for you at the moment at the moment I try and train six days a week and it's usually at least uh, twice a day so it's usually a, a water or a rowing machine session sometimes a bike session and then in the afternoons I do a heavy weight session or a hit session that's typically my my week and and I have to entwine all that and work around uh, working full-time as a registered mm. nurse in the emergency department so I work part-time there and I also work part-time at a company called OzHelp where I work in mental health and suicide prevention in the construction industry. Mm. So lots of balance. Lady. <laughs> lots to balance. <laughs> I'm lucky You're I got not. you. I'm lucky I got 40 minutes or 50 minutes for you to to talk to us. Oh yeah, I'll put that aside for you anytime, Liz. We go way back. <laughs> <laughs> and the you know your work in the ED department that's pretty physical as well. How do you balance that with the training load at, at the same time? Yeah. It's very challenging and it's shift work as well. So I do do night shifts, I do evening shifts, morning shifts, which constantly change. You know, they're not the same each week. I can walk, uh, you know, in ED. I can walk up to easily more than 10,000 steps in Mm. one shift. So I've we've had to really fine-tune the training to incorporate those shifts with that amount of energy load. And it's hard because, you know, in that you know, 10-hour shift, you know, between 8 and 10 hours, we'd be lucky if we get one break, maybe two. Yeah. And they're very quick. So it's shoving in what you can, nutrient-rich to keep you going, and then yeah. also for me to back up the next day for training. That It's very, very difficult and um, it's still a working progress, but we're, you know, we're fine-tuning it. Mm. Yeah, because it's almost like a whole other training session in itself. 100%. And it depends on the load that's coming through. You know, if you've got very physically demanding patients that are coming in that have a lot of uh, broken bones or things like that. So it's a lot of manual work as well. Mm. You know, we try not to do too much, but, you know, we have to move quickly in ED and move patients around. Like it can be quite physical also on the upper body, not just the lower. Yeah. Wow. Lucky you're an athlete. I'm sure that helps in many ways. Yes. Well, I think it has actually helped in many, many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you eat to support your training? Run through what a typical day might look like if there is such a thing in the life of Cat Ross. 
Yeah. <laughs> As I said, it changes sometimes um, due to the shift work, so night shift and things like that. But typically I like to I like to train fasted first thing in the morning and then eat straight after training. And that could be anything from like yogurt and berries or sometimes um, some toast with ham and cheese on it. And then, you know, a bit of a snack a couple of hours later, <laughs> try and get something else in. And then lunch. Lunch is typically leftovers from the night before or I've been working with this company called Gym Meal Direct in the Canberra and they've been I've been very fortunate that they supply me with some meals, some mm-hmm. ready meals, a bit like those gym meals. So they're mm-hmm. real, really good, rich nutrient meat and veg generally and a bit of carbs. So I have one of those mm-hmm. for lunch. Then another snack might be some more fruit and maybe a, a muesli bar or yogurt and then that's generally before training if I got weights in the afternoon then I'll have a protein shake after that and and then it's not long till dinner so trying to keep fueling constantly but you know sometimes that doesn't happen as slim you know slim lining as I would like due to work and things like that but quick things that I can get in when I if I can as I squeeze a yogurt they're like a winner and then some fruit with that just to get some protein and some carbs and sugars in and that keeps some energies up till I can get a, a decent meal in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a lot of a lot of things that you've got to sort of think about on all the way through each each day. Do you find that there's some days that you just can't get enough calories in for the amount of work that you've done? Yeah, and I and it, like I said it's still a work in progress. We're still mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's the best method for me because I tend to eat quite a high protein diet and a lower sort of carb even though I'm training quite a lot the energy burnt is quite different being a para I find Mm -hmm. than say an able-bod rower I don't tend to use as much calories uh, as they do Mm -hmm. Um, my training is slightly different so then I have to be careful of not eating too much as well because um, mm-hmm. I won't be burning those calories off and then I start to become quite sluggish when that happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about hydration? Do you find that something that's challenging? Are you a, a pretty good sweater or is that something that's also a limitation? I never used to be a good sweater at all. I'd say I'm probably still not the best, but that's also developed because of a medical condition. Yep. Um, but back in back when I first started, I, um, I really did, didn't sweat a lot which kind of frustrated me when I was riding bikes and things like that and on the rowing machine and people have sweat pools under them and I'm like, God, they've worked hard and I don't. And I'm like, have I not worked hard? Like I'm always questioning myself, have I not worked hard enough? It just seems to be my body. Only back in 2014, I had a um, serious head cold, head virus. And uh, being an athlete, we are not allowed to take certain medications like cold and flu and Sudafed and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I battled through it for quite some time. And unfortunately, racing and training and putting the body through that stress constantly with this head cold damaged my pituitary gland where you release the antidiuretic hormone to retain fluid. So um, I developed this condition called, it's called diabetes insipidus. Now Mm -hmm. it's got nothing to do with diabetes, only the symptoms Mm -hmm. are the same. But basically, in short, my I don't retain any fluid. Yep. So that started to become quite a challenge mm-hmm. in hydration and managing that and not becoming I – can, I can become very dehydrated very quickly if it's yep. not managed well. And challenges with that, of course, is competing in heat, 
long durations of training, things like that, and keeping your electrolytes balanced. I have to take a small medication three times a day to keep my body to retain fluid and to keep that balance and sodium levels and everything right. So that's a whole new challenge I've had to deal with as an elite athlete. And yeah, it's still, I'm still working on that, but I think I've got it pretty much right. But it's definitely uh, a challenge then managing mm. that side of things, not just your nutrition, but also your, your fluid balance intake. Yeah. So, I mean, you'd have to stay on top of making sure that you're drinking really consistently throughout the day and, and also particularly at work, I imagine. Yeah. And the, and the problem is having that right balance so you're not dropping too much electrolytes, which can be done very quickly with this condition. So I generally have to mix things up with, I drink a lot of water, but I tend to, you know, have your odd Gatorade, things like that to keep those electrolyte balances better. Um, It's very interesting. Your body tells you what you need. Um, Mm -hmm. I can tell when my sodium levels are too low or or they're too high. I can tell when I'm, even potassium levels, I can Mm -hmm. can feel when they're not quite right. So, you know, the biggest thing that I've had to learn is really listen to my body what it needs and Mm -hmm. not be afraid to to give it what it needs. Yeah, so that was always a bit of a challenge because, you know, I like to be, you know, wanted to be low low carb low sugar but your body tells you exactly what you need plus all those yeah. electrolytes and everything so yeah challenge yeah. yeah and i guess that's a not so pleasant lesson of of not exercising hard whilst you're actually sick yes yes so whenever whenever you're unwell and people say you need to rest do rest because there is a mm. reason you know, I put the body through pretty hard stress yeah. while very, you know, I was quite unwell. But I just battled through, right? And I think that's a bad habit of athletes is that we we don't want to take that time off to let the body recover from sickness because we're afraid we'd lose too much, you know, from not training and things like that. But in fact, you know, you're doing your body some justice. Yeah. If you listen to it better. But, yeah, no, I, I didn't listen to it at all. The doctors were like, how do you feel? I'm like, yeah, okay, when actually I wasn't. Yeah. You know, and you take the odd Panadol and that's it to help. But, um, you know, like really it was it was a pretty bad, bad virus that I had. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's really unfortunate. I'm sure you're much better at listening and, and being sensible these days. Well, I'd like to. you're athlete. <laughs> I don't know really. Sometimes I think <laughs> we keep trying to look for more and push more out of the body and oh gosh, yeah. No. no. <laughs> so I think we probably should listen a lot more. Yeah. Than we do. Yep. <laughs> and uh, outside of that, do you have any other key nutrition challenges? Have you ever had issues with iron deficiency or any other major challenges and and how do you deal with traveling? Yeah, definitely. I take an iron supplement quite regularly. I, for some reason, no matter how much protein I eat, my body only absorbs a certain amount, which is quite frustrating. <laughs> and I notice once I drop, like take off taking the supplement, I drop pretty quickly. Yeah. So unfortunately, I've, I've decided that it was best for me to just stay on it and keep those levels up as high as I can. Otherwise, I get very, very fatigued very quickly. Um, yeah. And, and really sort of start struggling there with traveling um the one thing i find nutritionally hard is when you go to different countries and their food is very different to ours you know you condition mm. your body to eat 
what we have because, you know, we spend the majority of the time here. But then when you go overseas, you know, their food is quite different and you try to stick to what's similar but, you know, cooking styles are different and all those kind of things. So sometimes uh, I try and take things that I snack on like muesli bars and things like that, I tend to take with me so that I've got some normality from home in the guts uh, Mm -hmm. because sometimes that starts to play up with the different types of food. Yep. Mm -hmm. Cool. Wow. And I guess, you know, do you feel like even though you've been doing this for such a long time, you know, 2006 you said was your talent ID, so this is what, 14, 15, 16 years on? Wow, that's a, that's a pretty long career. Do you feel like you're actually still getting faster and, and stronger? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I thought there would be, I think there was a plateau there at some stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think the change for me was when they changed the distance of the yeah. competition and that sort of changed my racing type and and ability to keep moving and and I've actually you know I've been fortunate and not many people can be at this level you know for 14 years and, and still keep progressing I mean in, in 2019 I broke the world record mm. and then since then COVID came along but you know I'm still I'm still at the top of my game yeah. even at the age of almost 41 and mm. still making Sure, things are a little bit different in terms of recovery. Uh, it takes a lot, lot more than what it used to. My physique is probably not, you know, I'm not as lean and, and things like that as I would like to be. But training training is very different as well. You know, back when, you know, t- even 10 years ago, I could just flog myself like training, just go hard all the time and, you know, you, you recover quite quickly, whereas now it's quite different. Yeah. But while I'm still at the top and still producing gains, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep pushing forward. There will come a time where I'll be like, okay, enough's enough. I've got to let the body have its time <laughs> to yep. settle down. But, you know, I'm sure it will tell me when that time is. Yeah. Awesome. So, Kat, do you have any recommendations for potential para-athletes who may be looking at getting into para-rowing? How would they go about doing that? Oh, Wow. You know, come along to a come and try day. They're all, they're always running in each states. Keep your ear to the ground. Jump on the Rowing Australia website and um, see where they are, or or even look at the state bodies themselves. Yeah, there's always a come and try day. Jump on a rowing machine, have some fun, see how you go, or even rock up to a club and go, "Hey, I'm interested." You know, mm-hmm. is there a way to to get this ball rolling? You know, there's many avenues, and it, and you know, get out and have some fun and where it takes you I mean I never thought I would ever be rowing in my life you know starting at the age of 25 that's pretty pretty old for a rower to start rowing but you know you just never know you never know until you try I mean I never knew so but look where I am it's taken me many places Mm. and internationally do you see that there's an increase in opportunities available and, and more people and more countries more athletes and more countries coming into the games yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's what's it's very exciting, uh, watching that mm. progression and development. You know, when I started, you sort of had your biggish sort of countries, uh, but now we're starting to, you know, get your smaller ones into into rowing, which is very exciting. And, and I mean, rowing used to be primarily, you know, that sort of toffee sport, you know, private school, you know, mm. and you weren't really in it unless you sort of had some money, whereas, you know, not in my case, <laughs> um, I didn't come from <laughs> 
background at all. You know, I was public school and, you know, one of six kids, so, you know, yeah. farming life, you know. And it's great to see that the doors have opened up for that for people like myself. You know, we're targeting public schools now and that anybody can come in and join rowing and, yeah. you know, the different countries. You know, I raced against Mexico and and Latvia and all those smaller countries, which is so exciting. It's, it's so wonderful to see them investing into the sport. Argentina is a, is doing fabulous with their with their team and the development mm-hmm. they have had over the last probably I would say five years is growing so big and, and the same with like Brazil. Just countries like yep. that where you wouldn't think rowing would be primarily looked at. Uh, yep. They're huge. They've got big teams. Even India have got big teams. Mm. And it's exciting, you know, like it's just opened up the doors to many things and everyone can enjoy this sport. Like it is a very enjoyable sport to be mm. to play. Yeah. And what about any recommendations for coaches or practitioners when working with para-athletes? Oh, yeah, think outside the square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, we're all different, completely different. There's no cookie-cutter mm. Uh, approach to para-athletes and that's in any sport you know everyone's impairment is different everyone's uh, ability is different but you know don't be afraid of you know what they what what their impairments are don't be afraid of that don't be afraid to push them we you know we we've been through a lot and and you know we have a lot to give And, and you know the growth that you will see as a coach will be extremely rewarding I've seen so many para athletes grow, not just physically, you know, from from training and gym work and things like that, uh, but confidence and yeah. uh, life skills. Like it's, you know, athletes and coaches can learn so much just from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't be afraid to push each other beyond your boundaries and think outside the square. Training's not just streamlined. Um, yes. There's, there's lots of ways of there's lots of ways of making the same thing work. Yeah. Cool. Fabulous. Well, Kat, it's been really great catching up with you and and having you share your story with us. Just to finish off with, what's your favourite food? Oh, my goodness. There's too many, actually. And I (laughs) I always have to think about this. And I'm a a dessert girl. It's terrible, Mm. but I'm definitely a dessert girl. And it's anything like like apple crumble or something like that. Like... (laughs) I don't have a specific because there's just way too many, but that, you know, on a nice cold day, that would be warm comforter. <laughs> there's always a little dessert stomach ready to, to accept that, isn't there? Oh, 100%. I always believe that there's, there's definitely, but mine's bigger than what it should be, I think. So, <laughs> unfortunately, I've got to tame that one in. <laughs> fabulous well Kat thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your busy busy time and we wish you all the very best for your upcoming events and world championships this year and potentially obviously moving on to Paris as the next games oh thank you Liz thanks for having me um yes it's been a long journey I'm looking forward to it and hopefully I can hold out for another two years till Paris (laughs) see what I can do there so exciting to ahead. I think it's useful that Kat has highlighted that her calorie needs are lower than her able-bodied counterparts because she's an arms only rower as opposed to actually using her legs as well. Since her protein needs are similar it means that the lower calories 
results in a lower carbohydrate intake compared to those able-bodied counterparts. So while she says it's a lower carb intake, it's actually just proportional to her calorie intake, not a truly low carb intake. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback or any recommendations on people you'd like to hear from, please leave that information on our website. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Stephanie Wheeler, who is a wheelchair basketball coach at the University of Illinois.